Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, hello. It's Wednesday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's been inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Wednesday, we have Patrick Klopek. Hello. Danielle Rando. Hi, hello. And uh, Natalie couldn't join us today, um, but we are joined by special guest, uh, Pikachu. Pikachu. Uh, anyway, that was the most cringe to, thing I've ever done in my bit. entire fucking life. Uh, actually, Kato was just—he turned off his headphones. He walked away. He's done. He's never coming back. No, he's no. not producing anything anymore. <laughs> Natalie, like no, no. Kato's like screen capped this and is now like spray painting like Natalie's outfit onto the hood of a car. Uh, oh my so god! That's, I know what I know. What kind of person Kato is? We all we all did the twenty we all did the twenty four hour stream. <coughs> Jesus. We anyway. all become radicalized in different ways. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's Halloween and tis the season to be haunted, my friends, which is the theme of playwright Jess Butterworth's The Ferryman, which is currently playing in New York following a very successful run in London. Uh, and it's an absolutely unforgettable live theater experience that I've sort of been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. I was down in New York for the uh, <clears throat> the live stream marathon for the uh, Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights uh, Project. And before that started, I treated myself to an evening at the theater. Huh. Oh, and, how refined. Uh, it was. It was. Um and then, uh, and then Patrick and I closed out the night by drinking <laughs> our mini bar completely dry. Uh, but thanks, Vice. Before, <laughs> before that, uh, I, I watched uh, *The Ferryman*, uh, directed by Sam Mendes and starring Laura Donnelly and Patty Considine. Uh, who, for those of you who watch *Peaky Blinders*, Patty Considine is probably somebody you will instinctively hate because he played one of the most evil motherfuckers on that show. Um, so I highly, uh, <laughs> I highly recommend, uh, clearing those preconceived notions because he's, he's really great, uh, in the ferryman, but it is a, uh, family tragedy set in rural Northern Ireland in the early 1980s, um, sort of backdropped against the, uh, the hunger strikes, uh, happening in, I think, Long Cash Prison, uh, where IRA uh, prisoners were striking for political uh, status as political prisoners rather than as uh, criminal offenders in the British uh, carceral system. And this is this this occurs on sort of the day of the harvest uh, for the Carney family. 
And as this is all happening in the in the background, a long lost member of the family is found. Um, somebody who disappeared ten years ago. They are found uh, tied up and shot dead in a bog, and Yikes. they've sort of been brought to the surface. And the strong implication is this person was murdered uh, by the uh, by the IRA as either an informer or or some other kind of offender, and then they were just disappeared, and nothing was ever explained or or told to the family. Now their death is public knowledge, and the IRA needs to figure out what they're going to do with that information. But how this affects the family is, this is a family that in 10 years has in some ways moved on from the disappearance of this long-lost brother and husband and uncle. Um, And on the day of the harvest, uh, sort of the uh, head of this family, um, Quinn Carney, is... uh, bringing together the whole family for both to bring in the bring in the harvest and to sort of have a a family celebration and the knowledge of this discovery is about to hit this family and set in motion a series of sort of chain reaction tragedies uh, that are going to unfold as well as touch off a lot of other you know long buried simmering issues and secrets um and it's a Really, like I think it's a very good play. I think uh, there was a review by uh, the, by the Vulture that was a bit more negative. That I think is a very fair review. Um, for as good as the play is, it does have an almost mechanical assembly to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a play that, like, as you think about it, you can sort of see the way that like every single beat is carried off very well, but also it is so neatly set up and established that. The play lacks some spontaneity. Uh, nevertheless, though, it's a really incredible play and uh, one that I've sort of been thinking about a lot since uh, since I saw it, in particular because one of the real themes of this play is that this is a family that has kind of tried to escape the politics of their moment. Like, they're Northern Irish Catholics, uh, with ties to the provisional uh, Irish Republican Army and a long history in uh, Irish Republican uh, activism and resistance. But they've kind of, the head of the family, Quinn, has kind of sworn all that off and tried to insulate the family from uh, sort of the sectarian violence and uh, political violence in, in Northern Ireland. And in this Harvest Fest, the people coming in to help bring in the harvest, half the family, is from the city where a lot of this is sort of focused. And I think one of the really interesting tensions uh, in this, in this, in this play is that while they're all in the same, they're all in the same family and they, you you can feel the affection and love and shared history uh, from, from the start of this play, there is this like simmering anger beneath the surface that the part of the family from the city don't get to opt out of this reality of this context mm-hmm. like it is in their faces day after day and they've sort of been increasingly radicalized uh by that experience and they come up to their country cousins who like have a history of radicalism but the country half of the family very much has this position of don't bring the shit to our door like <laughs> we're not in this mm-hmm. 
And I thought it was one of the interesting parts of that play. Yeah, I just find it, I found the, the uh, just the concept of, you know, families divided by, or like family experience divided by like geographical location to be like so poignant, especially, you know, thinking about having family members that live in the suburbs and, and like don't like deal with a lot of like the political realities that um some people may face that live in more metropolitan or or are just are being directly confronted with um um in their daily lives and to bridge that gap like i i'm curious to to know how the play bridges that gap of communication between you know and and it seems like for the most part the the country family is just resisting rather than like ignorant to it because like you said rob they've you know had this like history of it it's been in their past so they're like it's it's in their in their family but at least for now there's like an active sort of resistance to it or, or hesitation to really confront it I was going to ask, it's it's somewhat unrelated, so if you want to address oh. that point first, it's also totally fine. No, I, I think that that's, Natalie's question is also a good one. Um, I think the play absolutely tackles that, but obviously it doesn't have a satisfying answer. Like, this is a play, like, th- th- you're not going to come out of this play having a position on hardly anything, right? Like, this mm-hmm. is a play that is very much about... Uh, this is not a play that's going to be like, well, here are my solutions, uh, which I think yeah. is a silly thing to ask of art. Like, this is the what makes it a tragedy is, uh, you know, by and large, everyone in this in this play, with the exception of a couple characters, has very relatable and understanding and understandable motivations. And the thing is, like, to a degree, communication literally can't effectively happen. Uh, particularly on that issue between the Carney family who live in the country and their cousins, the Corcorans, uh, because the Carneys are right. The Corcorans are bringing bad shit to the door. They are coming in. Like, they've already started to flirt with... Uh, one of the things about the IRA, particularly during this time and then increasing through the 80s and into the 90s, is that it is a political organization. It is a terrorist organization, uh, it is also uh, a resistance organization, but it's also a criminal organization. Like, they're increasingly involved in just gangster shit um, mm. and protection money. And there's a lot of people that, like, get hurt for reasons that don't have a high-minded motive behind it. And the Corcorans are signing on, like, one of the characters, uh, Shane Corcoran, is played by um, Tom Glenn Carney, who was one, like, an incredibly young actor uh, in this play is absolutely like up to his eyeballs on the shit and he is bringing bad things to to the family but mm. he's also pretty much on the money when he accuses his cousins of like kind of willfully closing their eyes to the injustices that are like visited on him and his family every day um and so so that gulf between them like they can, they can understand each other's position but they're both fundamentally they've got a pretty solid read on each other and there's a lot of justice to their critiques of one another yeah so one thing that i i saw in your notes here is that it's a funny script in a lot of ways that there are some funny moments and you you definitely know it it's not as funny as 
it thinks it is in some ways, uh, which I suppose partially speaks to my question. But something we've talked about a lot is media that can sort of thread that needle between if it's really, really funny or if it's really, really disarming in some way, that means it can be much more dramatic and it can punch that much harder. We've talked a lot about like things that can successfully thread the needle and, and do the highs and lows of drama and comedy tend to do those things better and really kind of hit you in the gut. And I'm wondering if you had that experience here. Uh, I absolutely did. Uh, I, I think the the funny beats are very, very funny. And there there are some that, that pop up. There's some great and beautifully sad like gallows humor. Uh, in, in this play as well. But uh, I, I think one of the things that makes the humor really sing in this is that this is a play about life going on. Like it's the Harvest Festival. And that is being disrupted by the sudden intrusion of this long buried sin, uh, this this political violence. But fundamentally, it is also getting at this reality of this is a family that love each other. And there is a shared history and there are stories and there are rituals and there is belonging and togetherness. And part of that is that these people crack each other up. Like Mm -hmm. this is a group and it is palpable on the stage. This has a huge cast. Uh, All the families like have like extensive extended families uh, as part of them. So I would say there's got to be like at various points, like 20 people on that stage. Yeah. I saw a couple of reviews mentioned that like at certain points, like the entire stage is just full with people in a way that, like and they're not just uh, bystanders; they're like active participants in, you know, the the action. Yeah, and they got like there's all these fucking little kids who are like great, oh, and um... like it is so hard to find like good child actors, and like we're talking some of them quite young, and they are tasked like they're not just there to look cute and like give one or two lines. Like there are a couple scenes and exchanges that are like carried uh, by these kids, and they completely land it like one of the most damning verdicts of the corcorans comes from uh like a little like 10 or 11 year old uh who just has sort of been listening quietly in the corner all night and just sort of breaks down like completely all the fronting that is happening in front of him uh so it's it's this extensive cast it all and it all comes off that like these are real people and they are real family and their dynamics feel real and that makes the loss doubly painful when shit really begins to happen uh, because of this, right? Like, it, the, the family is not a prop that gets broken up uh, by the action of this play. The family is a unit to which you were invited as a guest of the play. And it's maybe destruction or, or, or something, but the, the trauma about to be visited on this family is then doubly compounded by the fact that, like, you can see and feel uh how real their affection is did you find this one of the reasons that it lingered was like do you see any parallels to sort of like our current political moment i mean i was reading the history of the play and you know a lot of the genesis of the original ideas were like a long time ago like more than 10 years ago i mean it was written more recently but um sort of this whole notion of you know politics doesn't matter until it's you know it's knocking on the front door uh certainly seems relevant to our current moment yeah i i think I mean, there are obvious uh, parallels uh, between, like, uh, like police violence, for instance. One of the things mm-hmm. that the Corcorans complain about is that by this point, Northern Ireland is under military occupation. Uh, cities like Derry and Carrickfergus and uh, Belfast all have like extensive military presence, and like daily humiliation uh, by the authorities is is sort of routine. There's that obviously echoes 
uh, for a lot of things in, in contemporary American life and is visited on a lot of different people. I think another thing, so I went through this phase of really being fascinated by uh, Irish politics. Um, just partly about sort of getting in touch with that part of my family and sort of understanding, like, why do my, why do my grandparents and my great-grandparents emigrate, uh, for instance? Um, also, I just became fascinated by the figure of Michael Collins, uh, who just has this, like, sort of incredible uh, life in, in sort of resisting uh, and, and throwing off British imperialism uh, in Ireland, or at least partially. But I got into reading a lot about Northern Ireland, and I think one of the things I found fascinating about that is that it's very easy to other colonial and imperial violence. It's very e you know what I mean? Like, if you think about it, it's very easy to imagine... Uh, terrorism and military occupation is all happening in some distant place that is hard to relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I don't mean like hard to relate to the common humanity, but I mean like I do not, I, I, have, I have a harder time imagining living in, you know, a city like Beirut or Baghdad or Basra simply because like I don't have the language, I don't know that culture, I don't, like it's just, it is foreign to me in a very profound way. Ireland feels near and relatable, like common language. It's so it's it's so close to England. You know, it's not it, it doesn't feel like this distant country, but all these same dynamics appear. Who's who's a criminal? Who's a who is a political uh, resistor? Right. Um, what is it like to go through your daily life uh, sort of under this constant threat of um, imperial oppression and control and i found sort of looking at ireland kind of interesting because it was so easy to imagine uh it is such a it is it is a common culture it is a common language it is a common history and all those things happen and all the same dynamics repeat and i think that is maybe what makes a play like this uh particularly effective is that um I think this play gets at a reality that is common to a lot of people around the world in a lot of different places, but it packages it in a way that is warm and inviting and familiar. And I think that makes this message slip through a little more effectively. Um, but I also think it is hard for people to sometimes understand how serious parts of this play are. Um, like, there's this one sequence where an aunt who's just this like old pissed off old rebel, uh, she, you know, <laughs> she has memories of like the Easter rising in 1916 and shit like that. Uh, but she goes off on this diatribe about Margaret Thatcher and like, she's just like blistering the paint off the walls, just swearing, cursing and like almost on the verge of tears. And the audience starts laughing because she just seems like this old wound up, uh, mm. you know, shit kicker. But, like, I know just enough about, like, that context and the history she's referring to where I'm like, this isn't funny. Like, this isn't this isn't a put-on. This isn't cartoonish. Like, this is real. And you're thinking it's funny and it's just talk. But there's actual pain and violence and blood underneath those words. And, like, that's something that I don't think the audience hears at the start of the play. But, by God, they get it by the end. Which I think is another is, is, way is, I wonder if uh, as someone that's not super familiar with 
plays like a I've seen Hamilton. I'm that guy, but like not like a big <laughs> theater person. Um, you know, a lot of my or I've seen a lot of plays, but usually it's like the cinematic adaptations and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I wonder if someone it sounds like Rob that you've seen uh, more stuff in an actual theater. Like, is part of that like part of the medium? Like, I wonder if some of that is you know, uh, was it Sam Mendez or Mendez? Mendez, the, the director. Yeah, like you know, he comes from you know, cinema and is directing a play here. And some of the reviews were touching on like the cinematic flourishes that he had like brought to the actual construction of it. But I wonder if that's an instance where like the, the actual structure of the play like works against some of the tonal shifts that are happening in the play itself and are harder to convey in a theater format as opposed to like a more traditional cinematic format where like camera framing and uh, sound composition would be able to better convey that shift in real time. That's an interesting. So there, there are some criticisms of Mendez's direction of of the play, and I, I don't know theater very well myself. Like, I've started going to plays more often because I'm down in New York a lot more often. Like, right? I mean, it is a real problem, I think, in like American culture that only like huge hits tend to have traveling shows that that people can like go see in their local communities. But a lot of these performances, mm. like, they just don't they don't make it out into the wider culture. Like, I think there's tons that people like around the country could get from seeing the ferryman, but unless we're lucky enough to get an adaptation of the ferryman, um, I don't think a lot of people are, are going to see that. But I think one of the things that I think is very effective in this play, like the way the, the play starts before it begins is, is the, is the funny thing I'll say. Um, like, while they're still seating the audience, um, the first set of the play is sort of opened, and actors come out in character, and they begin and they begin piping in the sound of, um, you know, a Northern Irish city at night, uh, you know, transports and helicopters, and these two guys, like, one of them lights a cigarette and, like, stares out into the crowd unseeing, and I think one of the things that's really effective in this play is that it all feels so immediate and those transitions and those tonal shifts feel like they're happening to the place you inhabit and not a place that exists through the medium of a screen. It is not a mediated experience in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually think it's very, I think, I think there's a great movie version of this. um, But I think you'd actually have to adapt it quite a bit to recapture some of what happens naturally in the play. Natalie. Yeah, that was going to be kind of, where you ended where I was asking you to go uh, in terms yeah. of like, do you think the, that it uses the medium effectively in a way that because the Vulture article did say that like some of the transitions felt like um, tension was lost just due to like the length of them and things like that. Um, so I know the transition they were talking about. See, this is the thing like I don't watch plays that often. Yeah. When I read that <laughs> review after that, I was like, that is the most nitpicky bullshit. Like, that felt like the... That yeah. reviews felt very hung up on the production in a way that I was rolling my eyes half the time. Where, like, yeah. The, half the review was, like, making, like, interesting points about a work I haven't seen that was, like, commenting on the narrative and, like, the, uh, uh, and, and, like, the actual writing of the script. And then half of it was just like... Oh, get your get that stick out of your ass! Like, come <laughs> on! Like, yeah, like yeah. there was the the reviewer has this real problem that there's a three minute break in the last before the last act of the play while they do some last minute scene rearranging. People can rush to the bathroom, but it is a fast and you can and you can 
Rob, you can see them doing the shift. You can see you can those see people. them lighting the candles. are visible. Yeah, and so it that felt like such a weird, like the equivalent of like, I don't know, the guns don't, the controls don't feel very tight to me. <laughs> like that might be, that might be true, but also like, is that the thing? Is that the experience? Is that the, is that the thing that determines how we should feel about this play? That felt like a very inside baseball-y uh, play. And to me, actually, that, that last pause, there's weird urgency to that whole break that like it's, it's at a dramatic moment. And you get three minutes, and the crowd like has three minutes to catch its breath before they know all hell's about to break loose. Like that three play, mm. that three minute break for me was like three minutes before the execution. It was mm. like, yeah, it was part of the. Well, it almost sounds like it's a moment where you can like turn to like if you were seeing the movie with someone, like you turn to each other and like briefly exchange theories before yeah. things kick into gear. And also just see the the like impact of the production itself like or just see that that sort of the labor behind it and see like what I think that's one of the greatest things about seeing a play I don't see them very often at all but just seeing the effort that goes into a production you can see it's like mechanisms working and things it's the like transparency very, like, is part of the appeal like, yeah like, it's like when very, I saw like, Hamilton it was like oh this is like really cool like you can kind of we're all kind of put we're all kind of just like looking the other way but like pretending that it's not all like the analog like mechanical like tactile like just everything is like material and it's moving and they're moving parts and it's just and it's all being done in real time is something that i think is is unique to the medium of putting on a play or musical and like should be actually kind of it requires like theater requires like a suspension of or requires more effort on the part of the audience goer because the facade is dropped in a lot of ways. So I, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, not to get hung up on this single point, yeah. but it just seemed like part, when I've gone to the theater, that has been part of my enjoyment. Now, maybe if that's what I did every day in the same way that we talk about video games, we get lots of sticks up our asses about things in video games that maybe people look at and roll their eyes. So, you know, uh, I don't want to throw uh, rocks in a, in a, in a glass yeah. house, but uh, yeah. Well, uh, anyway, like I highly recommend it, particularly if, like you are in New York, for instance, uh, tickets are not that wild, uh, okay. by the way. Like this is a popular show, but uh, you can get some like decent seats for, for not a, a, like we're not talking Hamilton dollars uh, okay. here. Oh, um, thank God. Like, I yeah, I, I, spl- like, I splurged on uh, like really good seats and I feel like I probably might even had a better experience if I'd gone slightly cheaper. Um, like mm. I like I honestly like <laughs> last thing on this. If you can see this play from near the front of the mezzanine level, because the pl- the stage gets so crowded and there is so much stuff happening there that like it's cool being up front and close and like reading like micro expressions and like characters say things under their breath that like people are not going to hear. Uh, you know, like mm. fifteen rows back. But there's certain like parts of this that like. I wished I had a little more of a commanding point of view on the situation and didn't spend entire scenes looking at, like, the side and back of someone's face. Sure. So, anyway, that's uh, that was my very long waypoint, but I'm very excited about it, about it and uh, I, 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 yeah. I, hope, I hope people check it out. And, and I hope somehow it makes its way uh, into a more widely available format uh, for folks. I wish people would just make make recordings of plays they do do that like 
like I know like Hamilton they've said like they they filmed like the last performance of like the original cast and it'll be released at some point but like the economic the economics of theater are like so weird yeah, uh, yeah. that that they it's sort of they have to exhaust all the money from the theater runs before yeah. all that stuff actually like happens so it's like at some point there will be before they do an adaptation of Hamilton into like a an actual cinematic film right. like there will be like a film staged version of it that mm-hmm. comes out you know five you know three or four three four five years from now when that you know it doesn't it isn't packing houses the way it was before yeah it's weird. for sure uh so I guess there's a segue here uh <laughs> is so there there is I, I, I rem- the, eco- yeah. the, the 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 economy of China is changing well weird economics and like <laughs> weird barriers you can put up between people and like fundamental experiences uh that, that they could otherwise have uh yeah Patrick want want to tell us a little bit about your uh truly scary as hell uh Halloween waypoint yeah, so uh, one of my favorite podcasts uh, started listening to after the financial crisis was uh, Planet Money. Um, highly recommend people seek it out. It's a uh, short NPR podcast uh, in which the po- episodes are anywhere between twelve and twenty minutes, in which they break down like really like distressingly complicated financial systems and mechanisms in like a uh, a very like narrative driven, uh, easy to digest form. So I've been listening to them for you know probably uh, a decade now, um, and they did this episode uh, last week or, or within the last two weeks or so. Um, I have such a back catalog that I can usually never quite be aware, but uh, called Blacklisted in China, and it's basically about um, what is called the social ranking system. Um, they they the the analogy they use is if you watch the Black Mirror episode yeah. in which everyone around them is rating one another and there are consequences for that action. Like we kind of like laugh at it because it's like ah that's like a hyperbolic like wild way that like our world could go in the future and like actually in China like that is like in a lot of ways straight up happening. Oh, um, so there there's this yeah this thing called the social ranking system in which uh a, you know like the the kind way of spinning it is trying to encourage better behavior amongst Chinese citizens as China goes, as their economy has scaled to the point in which you have um, a lot of uh, rural folk becoming a middle class, becoming an enormously powerful middle class, starting to acquire money and wealth, and uh, the Chinese government, like I guess, uh, concluding that they don't actually have any manners and know how to act like a normal society. Um, China has a lot of very author, uh, authoritarian uh, uh, tendencies, like the, the government is fucked in a, in a lot of ways. Um, but so basically what the, uh, the story opens with um, this little uh, bit out of China in which uh, China was trying to deal with a problem in that like cars wouldn't stop for pedestrians. And so pedestrians were having trouble like crossing the street. Um, and the Planet Money interviews this person who says like, yeah. I don't stop for people because why? Like, why should I stop for people? Like, no reason for me to. And in China, there's this uh, social ranking system. It's a it's a point based system. I believe it's a thousand points. You can go above a thousand, um, and then a certain threshold, you get to something called the blacklist that I'll get into in a minute. Um, and between uh, cameras, uh, online uh, tracking, and uh, uh, actual in person government officials, uh, they keep tabs on what people do and don't do. And in this instance, uh, this, uh, this person being interviewed, like found out that you, people were losing, people he knew were losing points because they weren't stopping for pedestrians. 
And so he started stopping for pedestrians uh, because otherwise you're getting these points taken off of your uh, social ranking system. And so then the, the main gist of the story is about this uh, business person in China who, uh, you know, had a very profitable business. I forget exactly doing what. Uh, sort of on a whim. Chi- yeah, related, yeah, related to, to like natural he resources. He would like buy, buy coal from, from mines and then sell it to yeah. people that used coal. Yeah, and then uh, Ch- China's government changed like some regulatory practice, and it basically fucked his whole business. And he very quickly uh, was, you know, deeply in debt to the tune of like one point two million dollars. Could not pay it. Um, and one of the other things that China has a big issue with is like repaying of debt. Um, there's not an actual like great enforcement mechanism in order to get people to actually pay back their their debt. Um, and so part of the social ranking system was to try and find consequences for people to to repay their debts and so this person can't pay back their debts they get blacklisted in the system the blacklist um, there is just a website listing people's names there's a uh um i don't know how to tell people to watch this video we'll put it in the show notes but there's a tweet um in which you can watch like warnings about the blacklist on like trains that people are on they're like hey make sure to Act normal, act polite, or you know you'll lose points on the social ranking system. Yeah, like don't smoke in the non-smoking areas. Like right. don't be disorderly. Yeah, and like this is just like you know a like very dystop- dystopian Orwellian. Like you know a nice calming lady, you know, saying this as though it's just an everyday occurrence to just like be wary of that, or else you will lose some points. Um, and this person who wants to get off the the blacklist uh, discovers the consequence of the blacklist, which include. You just can't buy a ticket for high-speed rail. You need to take a bus. And so to get to the city, for this person to meet with financiers to, to start another business, to pay back that previous debt, um, it's the high-speed rail, something like 40 minutes to get where they're going, and then like the bus is like six hours. They can't uh, book at most hotels. You can't do any of the like local like uh, 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 airplane transportation. Like You're just locked out of making purchases as a result of this. And and additionally, you can't get loans at the bank. And so all the things that one needs in order to get themselves out of debt, you are unable to do because the system is punishing you for being in debt in the first place. And it's just, it's wild. There's, uh, you know, tweet, uh, do a Google search for Business Insider, uh, China social credit system, and you'll get a whole list of all these other, like, just completely bonkers ways that, like, you are... Uh, you lose points, like if you uh, play too many video games, if you're on social yeah, media if you're too like, long. If, you, if you're caught buying too, because it like tracks your purchase history too. So if you're uh, well, yeah, seen so like buying yeah. too many video games, you're like deemed as like lazy, and you'll lose points. And, and none of this is transparent, right? It's not like you can go to a list that's like, hey, uh, um, there's so many video games that is acceptable within Chinese society or the government has deemed um, acceptable. It all just kind of happens like weirdly behind the scenes and then they can like slow your internet. They can uh, uh, stop you from, they can have your dog the part taken that, away. That completely, oh yeah, that made me sad. The part that completely fucked my head was where you call somebody on the black yeah. blacklist and you get a pre-recorded message. Like first of all, you don't even get the phone ring. You get like a siren and then they're like, hey, uh, just so you know, you're calling somebody on the blacklist. And could you maybe encourage them to pay off their debt? Which is was a true mindfuck uh, for me. I think also in the episode, they mentioned that the, per- the, the business person who was trying to work themselves out of debt, like the 
the shaming systems in Chinese society attached to the social ranking system are like also location based. And so I forget exactly how it works, but basically this person was like driving through an area and then saw their name on a billboard. Like, like and the, the face, system, I think, right? Yeah. Like the, and like, like the, the, the amount of like public shaming that occurs with this stuff is just wild. Um, and the story ends with like this, this question of like, well, okay, all this stuff is bad. Like, can it actually accomplish like some of the smaller goals that it, that it claims to have? And like the, Chinese citizen does say like, well, I stopped for pedestrians now. <laughs> just like, okay, I'm, maybe there's a better way to achieve this goal. But I think like all like what it goes to underscore, unless like the bigger question I was thinking to myself and, and all up on the floor here was like, I, th- this sounds like a science fiction film. And it's like, oh no, like it's, it's not happening that far away. And like, it is actually being, you know, the, the kinds of things that we like, talk about and joke about and fear about like actually are being acted upon like tens of millions of citizens in like a giant fucking experiment um, in a way that sounds like a Black Mirror episode, but like is really happening, you know, just over the water. One thing I've been, uh, has been a, a very grim gallows humor hobby of mine for the last couple of years is just sort of how often a Black Mirror episode gets validated as like a, now this wasn't 20 years away or 100 years away, this is like current life, and I guess we're up to like four now at this point uh, with with this this sort of episode which is like a, a really flippant way of saying uh, <laughs> man, I, I sure do have that reaction as well about like, oh that, that seems like a horror movie that seems like a, a you know dystopic science fiction movie, but now here we are. Okay. What well, and it like weirdly connects into like what like Rob's play and like the the and you know our modern politics of the notions of resistance and it's like well what are like these people even supposed to fucking do <laughs> right like this is a world in which uh, if you spread what they call rumors online that you can lose part of your social credit score and rumors just means political dissent it just means sharing an opinion you know. It's not it, – they claim that it's, quote, fake news, but it's like, all right, well, that could mean fucking anything. That's whatever the government, de- like, determines is fake news. And it's just like – it just, just sounds like a terrifying society to be a part of, which you have all sorts of people who are, like, thankful probably that they're being brought into a better, like, societal class in which they can, like, conceive of going to hotels and, like, owning cars and, like, having real estate. And yet it comes at the cost of, like – well, if you want all these beautiful things, then, you know, you also need to acquiesce to this big brother uh, state that is constantly monitoring, you know, your every move and you have businesses. Like, they're, the reason the purchasing stuff works is because these businesses willingly or probably not willingly, right, like, uh, like are forced to give over data shared on uh, – that is spied upon their citizens in order to make it all click together. And, like, the at the end of the episode, they're like, oh, but, like, what if you pay back the debt? You get off the blacklist. And then there's some, like, analyst that, like, has worked with other folks on the blacklist. It's like – well, technically, you're supposed to be looking off the blacklist, but no one ever has. It's like, fuck. <laughs> Damn. That's scary, y'all. Dark. Super fucking bleak. Dark. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I guess the, the, the thing for me that is so... Yeah, like, first, it ends with that, you know, it's good. It's it's maybe a better citizen is like the most 1984 fucking ending to, to, to this thing. Yeah. Uh, but also... It is scary when you contemplate this stuff. The seamlessness and inescapability and, uh, like, uh, like omnipresence 
of systems like this? Where does resistance even begin? Where do you, like, you know, like one of the things that always scared me a lot. Um, so when I like, I read too much military history, uh, right? Like for, for <laughs> shocking. Sure. But one of the things that is really striking when, when I've, when I've read uh, like about the Eastern front, for instance, in World War II, is the degree to which uh, like Soviet generals and officers don't put down a lot of personal observations in their like it is like from from the from the documents a lot of them are left uh it is clear that there is a suspicion or reticence to believe that privacy exists for them that you have like you have the privacy of thought the privacy of action and that's always like sort of it's just it's just a it's a scary thing right like it's, it's a striking thing it's world war ii everyone is writing memo- like memoirs like through like Everybody is leaving like reams of journals and stuff, and a lot of this stuff was yes, like kept uh, in uh, Soviet archives that were sort of briefly uh, unlocked after the Cold War. But a lot of this just doesn't exist because there was this awareness that privacy wasn't real; that anything you said or thought or or God help you put to paper could like one day be be used against you. But even that is like the Stone Age of mass surveillance compared to what technology and like Silicon Valley uh, have sort of wrought and the way China has sort of deployed it. The like, this stuff is everywhere and it is being used to inform every aspect of your life. Somebody can't even fucking call you without being told like, Hey, you know, this person's no good. Why don't you tell them to stop sharing rumors online? And that works on two fronts. One, it like targets the person, but also you can't exist in a society like that and not start to wonder like how far does the surveillance reach, right? And at a certain point, the amount of self-policing that would begin to happen, the amount of self-restraint that begin to happen, like with, with political expression and exercise of like political will, seems like it becomes so limited uh, by Well, that's China's endgame, right? I mean, that like fits very neatly into like their whole approach like they would be just they don't want you to express yourself they want the appearance of expression so that they can bring in western businesses and they can seem like they're an evolving culture and they're open to ideas but like they're actually not and so like that does seem like the inevitable end game of all of this is suppressing any sort of meaningful expression that goes outside the boundaries of what the state deems acceptable and at the point that it becomes not only is it self-policing but you ostracize the folks that do not decide to play within the bounds. It's like the piece, the, the, the podcast goes in, like this businessman talked about how they stopped going to social gatherings. They stopped going out. They stopped participating in society because the way that they were being publicly humiliated, the way it was, one, people didn't want to associate with them. And two, it was just so personally demeaning that it just didn't seem worth it. And it's like you start to see how that weeds out certain members of society at the same time i'd be curious and the story doesn't touch on it at all is like fucking young kids are smart like they'll find ways to rebel like they will find pockets in which they can express themselves i'm just curious where china finds those pockets like where do chinese citizens find ways whether it's online or through other modes of uh, like in-person expression like it's happening somewhere i'm just curious how they go about doing it yeah um i 
visited China uh, three years ago, four, no, four years ago now um, as a part of a school. I was in this like uh, research travel seminar group um, and we went to China specifically to talk about um, art and censorship. And uh, we met with a lot of artists out there. I was there for like two and a half weeks and we met with a lot of artists out there and photographers um, um, musicians, uh, directors, all sorts of different people. We also met with a lot of um, activists, like people who supported like uh, workers' rights and things like that. And the one thing that I kept thinking about during this whole time is like, what do those arts districts look like now? Like what, those like art neighborhoods. What do um, those those activist uh, organizations look like now? Like. Um, it is because because the the from what i remember from talking to these people the government was aware of them and that was a constant and like to to have some sort of distance um was the only protection like the only barrier protection and that just seems non-existent now um so I, I really wonder what 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 youth culture is like in, in those sorts of neighborhoods. Like what what um that sort of like those small acts of rebellion by by going out to, to parties and, and and you know, um doing that sort of thing is yeah you know, like do you get ratted out to like the government monitor and like you lose points because like that one person hey like hey like I, 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 i'll fucking tell you about this party like don't dock me but like go dock all these kids for their social mm-hmm. credit score i don't know the age that starts at but i'm sure there's monitor even if it's like 18 i'm sure there is like monitoring that's happening and sort of like categorizing and profile building of every citizen regardless of their age well, mm-hmm. and like the mark of a really successful system like this is that it does like the lighter the touch, the more effective it can be. And so, like, mm-hmm. obviously you tolerate gray areas. Obviously you allow subcultures to flourish. And, uh, you know, there are places where people can speak a little more freely, uh, act a little more freely. Uh, but if you can create a great deal of uncertainty about where those boundaries actually are and, you know, direct those, like make illicit what is actually like pretty teen like tame and apolitical uh then rebellion becomes a liberty you allow people that never actually threatens you because uh, like that's that's my other sort of like suspicion about something like this is that of course there's a lot of stuff that like would probably be technically against the rules or like this isn't very good like social credit uh you know, this isn't good for your social credit score if you're caught uh, but if you can keep it from ever crossing the line to like explicitly political activity, you know what I mean? Like if, if rebellion means going to an underground party and like listening to loud music and doing uh, some drugs and it never means anything beyond that, that's fine as far as an authoritarian regime goes. Yeah, that doesn't, t- that doesn't topple the power. Yeah. That's just letting people blow off steam. Right. Uh. All right, uh, so <laughs> great. <laughs> let's China. Let's take a break and listen to a programmatic ad. Oh, oh no! Oh, bad. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. <laughs> well, that was fantastic. Uh, goodness gracious, I hope an ad was served up that was relevant to your interests. Uh, anyway... Uh, our next waypoint is a little more traditional in terms of the uh, thrills and chills and scares. Uh, Danielle, what have you been into this last week? Time to play. All right. Well, okay. <laughs> That's, you know what? You... I tried. Danielle. Danielle. I, I did tried. You? Did you? I did. That's what Pinhead says. All right, here. Mm. Look. I watched Hellraiser 2. Hell, excuse me, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, the 1988 sequel to Hellraiser, uh, which was a Clive Barker uh, masterpiece. I actually do think the first one is a masterpiece, and I will. Uh, I want to talk a tiny bit about it just to sort of set up the second one. Yeah, I, do, I don't uh, know I think it's Jack about Barker, by the way. So Perfect. Well, I don't know that He's much like about a, he... him other than sort of his creations, but Patrick, if you... Do you want to Yeah, say the short version of Barker is like... He's like a Stephen King, but people fuck a lot. Yeah, fucky Stephen King. Fucky Stephen King is definitely like a very good He's, one. Like, his 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 horror is uh, deeply uh, sexualized. Like involves like the notion of the flesh and and sex and uh, intermingling of like violence and sex is like pretty central to uh, like, body horror. Is like pretty sen- yeah. I know it's all it gets King. hot. Waypoints. Take yeah. take your skin off, baby. Yeah, literally. Like, that's the thing that uh, always fascinated me. Because I came to the uh, first movie as an adult. Like, I didn't see any of it as a kid or anything. So, you know, as a 30-something. And I was like, oh, it's Kink. Oh, it's a movie about Kink in 1987, which is Mm -hmm. kind of amazing. I mean, obviously, Kink has existed as long as human beings have existed. It just wasn't necessarily something you saw on film very often. I believe, actually, the second movie had an X rating at first until... They sanded down some edges, uh, so it's fun, fun fact for you. But uh, I want to read a tiny little piece of a 1987 LA Times review of the first one. So again, just to set up sort of what's going on in the second one. <clears throat> Hellraiser is intelligent and brutally imaginative, but it's definitely not tasteful or low-key. It's less an ultra-literate horror film than a violently self-conscious one. When Barker moves into his specialties, uh, the mingling of terror and perverse sexuality, the images of a human or monster bodies stripped raw, he's flagrantly flaunting the taboos, demonstrating his sexual radicalism. In Hellraiser, he's working not only out of fear of the dead, but taking a step further into fear of sex with the dead and a kind of satanically escalated kink. This mixture of of obscenity and terror gives the movie an appealing, ghoulish force. Which I found to be a, a fairly progressive review for 1987. Uh, so that's that's the first movie. Uh, so I think it makes good on all of its sort of uh, promises. The movie was absolutely tamed down from its source. Uh, Hellbent Heart, I think, is the name of the sort of novella. Hellbound Heart. Hell, okay, gotcha. Um, so that's where the uh, uh, the subtitle comes from in the, in the second one. Gotcha, yeah. 
Uh, so the first movie uh, sort of involves Frank, uh, a, a dude who's into kink, and sex just normal sex just ain't doing it for him anymore. And so he opens up the puzzle box. The Cenobites come, and the Cenobites are these like kink monsters, kink demons. You could call Wait, them. Wait, so is he? Is... is the box marketed towards him as being forced? It's to actually find it. so like. It's yeah. It's it's actually a little bit like um, Clive, the, the Hellraiser is uh, specifically sort of like kind of actually pulling from like H.P. Lovecraft in a way, um, which is you know an author we're going to talk about on, <laughs> on Friday's podcast. Wow. But like the the way the Cenobites work is like it's like forbidden knowledge sort of stuff. So it's it's mm. pulling from that sort of uh, like monsters from another dimension sort of thing that was like part and parcel with with Lovecraft. Yeah, gotcha. absolutely. Uh, and they do like wild sexual experiments and they're all they all have like a different kink that they're sort of associated with which again the movie toned down some of the stuff from the book but like it's it's there it's absolutely there it's absolutely clear there's pinhead with his literally pins in his head there's like a glutton cenobite there's the lady cenobite whose name is just female cenobite like in the credits which is very funny tells you a whole lot uh but anyway yeah first movie masterpiece very much about sort of kink and the pleasures of the flesh and, and, and body horror sort of mixed with kink. The second movie is a bit of a mess uh, in terms of like plotting and tone. Uh, it, it's a less coherent movie that also has a couple of things that I think save it as a movie. And number one is uh, Claire Higginbottom as Julia. So Julia is uh, sort of uh, one of the main characters in the first movie. She is, uh, uh, she's married to one guy uh ds9's garrick it's andrew robinson so if you like sexy gay spy from uh star trek deep space nine it's the same actor <laughs> and he's wonderful and he's this sort of like milk toast guy he's married to julia who's this sort of ice queen his brother is frank the guy who just cannot get enough and therefore he he needs to taste the extremes of the cenobites frank loves to fuck frank loves frank, to fuck frank fucky That's frank what frank stands for fucky frank you know he's a frankly a uh, horny man um <laughs> He gets torn apart in the first good for yeah, him. few minutes. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> you know, good for him, but also it's not good for him. And that's in a lot of why ways. you keep your horny off main. That's <laughs> what it is. It's really what it is. It's it's so much. Uh, but anyway, Claire Higgins reprises her role as Julia. Uh, she's undead in this one, which is great. Uh, and she is just chewing on scenery in this movie, just chewing it up, tearing it, just tearing it to shreds. She comes back, uh, she is, uh, there is a sacrifice that is done to bring her back from the dead, uh, and she comes back as, like, a mummy sex monster, uh, which is beautiful and wonderful, and then she, she gets a skin to put on so she can, you know, tart it up and flaunt around all the dead bodies she's around, uh, and just, it's a, it's the most wonderful, like, villainous performance, uh, and it kept me absolutely glued to the screen, even when the plotting was kind of all over the place, and I, I, I could... Okay, I'll, I'll go through the very basics of the plot just so you know. Honestly, this is like a bare-bones plot with a whole bunch of amazing visual imagery and this performance sort of draped over it. That's what makes it worth watching. But Christy is the girl from the first movie whose father is uh, Sexy Garrick, uh, Sexy Spy, uh, Cardassian from D DS9. She has survived. A whole bunch of bad shit happened. A lot of people died in the first movie. She survived. She's in a psychiatric hospital. Her psychiatrist is obsessed with the idea of Cenobites and has been trying to open up a portal to hell and hang out with the Cenobites. He kind of uses her to get to the Cenobites, becomes a Cenobite himself. He becomes, like, a suck monster, like, a very, like, extremely, like, he, he has a fucking, like, giant dong kind of thing where he, like, sucks life energy out of people. It's a whole thing. Everything is sexually coded in this movie. What do you think that's movie. a metaphor for? I, uh, you know... Not sure. It might the be surveillance state. Yeah. Lactation, maybe? 
Uh, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard one. So it's all on the nose. It's just like lampshade. A thousand percent. I'm curious now. Um, like one of the things that we we talked a little bit about, uh, is like kink is culture. What does it explore? What do like what uh what what is being serviced uh by kink and like ways media plays around with with that stuff but the difference is there there's a way of doing this in a way that like just explores the ideas and society's relationship with the, the these ideas and then there's a way that is just tapping into like old prudish stereotypes and attitudes and just like literalizing them without really critiquing them uh and I'm curious yeah. where uh Hellraiser tends to fall on like that continuum right like is, is is hellraiser like leaning toward a more progressive like sexuality or is hellraiser like basically hey look if you're horny and weird like frank you're gonna get torn the fuck apart and you'll deserve it too mm, yeah no. it, i think it starts mm. a little more interesting i think it starts i think of the first and maybe tiny bits and pieces of the second movie starts with at least a little bit of nuance like, I actually think Frank, at the beginning of the first movie, is somewhat sympathetic. Like, dude, he just can't get enough. Like, that's all. He needs some interesting stuff, and he goes exploring. Now, he's revealed to be a horrible monster by the end. Politics of these yeah, movies I mean, he are not murders great. murders Christie's father for no... Yeah, <laughs> and he's, then not they steal... he's not great. He's not great. He steals his skin. He, steals... he wears his skin around. Danielle. Not awesome. But... <laughs> but... I think he has a very relatable problem, okay? He, like, dude cannot get enough, okay? Dude is, like, he's, you know, he has his kinky sex. He seduces Julia. She can't get enough. She's not interested in Andrew Robinson anymore. Like, hey, these are relatable problems. Now, instead of saying, hey, kink can be healthy and consensual and wonderful and great, the movie is a horror movie with a lot of body horror and a lot of people getting ripped apart and all this other stuff. But at the very well, least, um, at the very least, the first two movies posit something interesting. And that is the Cenobites are humans who have gone through all these mutations and all these experiments and they've done all these wild things. And they are less uh, punitive agents than they are people who want to play. Later on in the movies, they completely, like, throw all the interesting, cool stuff out the window and they go through, like, a religious... Uh, the Cenobites have turned from, like, People who are human and exploring the outer realms of experience. I think that's the term. It's like the outer realms mm-hmm. of human experience and, and the flesh and desires and so on and so forth into, oh, they're just demons. They're just demons from hell. That's just all they are now. So, like, whereas there's a germ of a really cool and interesting idea here in these early movies, it, it gets thrown the fuck out towards the end of the movies. I still think there's some interesting stuff in this one, in in the second, as we should say. And I, I just want to mention that the imagery uh here especially in the second half of the movie is incredible it's that it's that it's in the era of late 80s it's all practical effects but they are doing some wild stuff with makeup and costume and uh even framing and cinematography they go to hell they open up a portal to hell and they're hanging out in hell and it's amazing the way hell looks and sounds and feels i wanted to make a a very brief connection i think this movie is a thousand times better than the thing i'm actually going to bring up but there are some bits and pieces of Agony, uh, the game, Patrick, that you reviewed this year, um, mm-hmm. where, where you said, like, yeah, this is a bad game with bad politics. There are some interesting visuals. And then there are, you know, this movie also, I think, was not maybe the best constructed movie, 
but it does have some fascinating visuals that I think really do make it kind of worth the ride. And sorry, Natalie, you definitely have a question. I wanted to just say visuals were really cool first. Oh, well, I don't know if Patrick has a... No, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I was just wondering what your take is on these characters being like wholly defined by their play, like being wholly defined in terms of like visual representation, um, that their that their kink is their identity. Um, and if you had any sort of takes on that. Yeah, I mean the Cenobites are just like monsters based on kink, right? I, I don't think they're very Do you feel like complex <laughs> yeah. depictions. I mean in the second movie there is a slight complication. So Pinhead who was just lead Cenobite in the first movie. His name was not actually Pinhead, but like as things went on, he became known more as Pinhead. And he's mm-hmm. he's the one you've probably seen if you looked at any of this stuff. He just has a lot of pins in his head. That's it. That's what's going on. In the second movie, it actually begins with his sort of journey with the puzzle box. Like he was a human being. He was a person who was seeking this out. He was like seeking kink. And he actually, you know, goes through the process. You see a little bit of the process that he goes through to become a Cenobite. And he actually kind of has like a moment of heroism in this movie towards the end where he actually like sort of sacrifices himself in a way uh, to help one of the heroines. And it's like, oh, he goes back to just being a human again. And all the Cenobites are in defeat have gone back to their sort of human forms. And you kind of see like some of some of their bondage gear like looks like normal bondage gear instead of the like ridiculous monstrosities that they're actually wearing through most of the movie. And it kind of has this moment of like of connection there of like, this is just human beings. They just have a kink. It's cool. It's fine. Mm. Um, I'm reading it that way in 2018. I doubt that it was necessarily the intention in 1988. It probably looked fucking cool. Like this is, this is another one of those where I I had a similar sort of reaction to um, Nightmare on Elm Street too, which is like, ridiculously queer coded there's so much there the lead actor i mean was Clyde barker is one yeah. of the more uh he, he is a he's a queer horror creator yeah so um and all of his work is often like sexually ambiguous so like i'm not saying that it's like as progressive as as you know looking 2018 it's a different lens but like it is worth remembering that like Clyde barker is an explicitly an outwardly queer creator yeah. whose work has is often deeply reflected like his own sexuality um like from top top to bottom yeah no that's a very very fair point and like probably one of the reasons why this holds up so much better than a lot of other stuff that was sort of working in the same not even working in the same circles i don't think there was much working in this circle there was was nothing no nothing like because i think they're like readings of like hellraiser uh uh probably more the book than than the film that are like you know uh you know meant to portray a it's a positive image of like um, of kink and like the idea of like what is pain, what is pleasure, yeah. like what is the fine line between those two, and then basically what it does is like there's there are, there are people who are seeking like more extreme versions of that, and then like the book gets into like a lot more detail of like the ideology of the Cenobites and essentially like you know their extreme like depict their, their extreme interpretation of like pain and pleasure and that it's just not compatible with humans and blah 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 blah. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I think it holds up pretty well yeah. on the political front, given when it was when it was made, and it was very transgressive at the time because a lot of what Barker was trying to do, and especially in the sequel, which he wrote the story for, not the screenplay of, it right. was directed by someone else, and then he was out of the series after um, the second one. Um, it was meant to be a certain shock value, like his argument, partially, especially with the adaptation of Hellraiser and why it leans so deeply into the body horror. And, and and the sexuality is just saying like 
this stuff is happening. Like, like other movies are just ignoring it. I'm just going to like make the stuff that's happening off camera in these people's lives. Like actually the text of like what you're seeing in front of you. And it was like meant to make like straight people uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, because there's like, no, like this shit is happening out there in the world. And like, people are doing this and like, it's not wrong. And it takes place in this villainous, you know, horrific context. But I do think like a lot of that are like reasonable readings of, of his work, even if it's less clear in the, the film version. Yeah. That's, that's super good context. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, because I, I sure, <laughs> I sure fucking love these movies and definitely saw something there, like something really valuable there and something really kind of awesome there that, uh, is not there in other movies from this era that I also love and think are great and think are masterful sort of horror experiences. But it's like, I also know, again, I don't have as much context uh, on him as a creator as you do, Patrick, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like, he was working across media, he was working in theater, he was working in sort of like alternative like dance and black box theater and writing and all sorts of other stuff. And he sort of brought along like a lot of friends from different scenes and from different sort of queer scenes into some of the filmmaking. So some of that, some of it translates, I think. Some of it kind of shows mm-hmm. up on the screen a little bit. And Oh, yeah. Abs- yeah, yeah, I think so. Which is which is rad. I mean, the text of the film obviously does not necessarily support the most positive reading of Kink, but it is one of those, like, as I'm having this conversation and, like, getting a little bit more of this context, like, really appreciating how much of that was transgressive. And, like, I was three years old and four years old when these movies came out. Like, this was, like, in my lifetime, but still feels like such an... In- enormously long time ago in terms of like what's accepted and what's accepted on screen at this point so yeah it's it's rad to hear natalie go ahead um well yeah just speaking to that it seems like there's oh my god there's little trick-or-treaters outside thank (laughs) you i keep waiting to get the first doorbell ring it's it's three o'clock here it's not happened yet it's probably closer to four very cute um i was just gonna say uh that it seems like and i haven't seen these movies but just from your descriptions that there is like some sort of a a freedom in assuming the kink and by like becoming the Cenobite that um you know you are allowed you to, to sort of <laughs> yeah or you, you're allowed to like transgress like the the like societal boundaries that held you back before that you you know you can hold like I said before like wholly be that and wholly just like assume that and I think one reading could be like that as freedom rather than that as sort of identific even as a as identification is not necessarily a bad thing but um uh instead of it being like one-sided or whatever but the but just to to be free in that and to to kind of just lean in and embrace it and have it on the forefront or on the foreground is perhaps the 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 positive here or the i dig it i'll take it <laughs> Time well to play. one last a, a bit i would i mention is if you're uh the second movie uh, hellbound like gives you a brief glimpse into hell and uh barker did do a book a couple of years back called the scarlet gospels which was him putting the character pinhead who is called the hell priest in like the book form pinhead was as danielle mentioned just like the nickname given to him <laughs> um because he's got pins in his head um and it's not – a lot of it's not good. Um, I think it's the last book that, that Barker has written um, in the last couple of years. But it is an interesting – like one of the things I mentioned in the, the uh, my review on Agony was like I am fascinated by the concept of people conceptualizing what like hell would be as a bureaucracy mm-hmm. um, and like just what the mechanics of like 
how would hell work? Um, and the Scarlet Gospels is like one of my favorite interpretations of that that tries to work through what the politics of hell would be. And I don't like it as a conclusion to the hell priest slash pinhead as a character, but in terms of like world building, it's like super interesting. So I would at least point people to that if they're interested in seeing more of what Barker had sort of envisioned for the, the larger context. Nice. Uh, so our last waypoint um, is very autumnal, I would say, if not horrifying or scary, though I haven't watched uh, that much. So maybe there's a, a sharp turn uh, somewhere along the story. But uh, Natalie, why don't you uh, take us in? My waypoint is Laidback Camp, which is an anime that came out much earlier this year. I think it came out in like March um, on Crunchyroll. And uh, I just watched the first two episodes and I, um, so I don't know if there is some sort of (laughs) wild turn of events that, you know, really goes down some sort of haunting path. But for now, what I know is that this is a slice of life anime about this young girl, Rin, who is camping just outside of Mount Fuji. Um, She like lives close to to that area and she um, is shown to be quite a seasoned camper and she's, she really knows what she's doing and uh, she camps out alone and is, is uh, perfectly capable. Um, But she comes across another young girl, Natashiko, who uh, she first, when she first sees her, she's like sleeping um, in front of like the, the camp station where you like get your permit or whatever. And then later, Nadeshiko reaches out to her and is like, I came to see Mount Fuji and then I fell asleep because it was cloudy and I couldn't see it. And then I woke up and it was nighttime and now I'm really scared. Will you please help me? And Rin and Nadeshiko become um, companions for the night um, until... Uh, 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 Natashiko's sister comes and picks her up. Um, so it was adapted from a manga, and the show features the the kind of quirk of the show is that it features a narrator who gives like real life camping tips as <laughs> at, like things are being done in the show, which is just so good. Um, like you'll see Rin walking around collecting firewood, and there's this like narrator voice that is like. First, you want to get pine cones, but the pine cones must be dry, and that will you you will use as your kindling. And then you want to get sticks, and you want to arrange them like this. And it's like, <laughs> it's just very cute. And but there, it's like educational too, um, which makes me really want to become a camper and go camping all the time and live in the forest. But um, what's funny is the the show actually. Uh, according to a article that was on Crunchyroll, um, actually incre- inspired an increase in tourism um, to these specific like campsites around uh, uh, Mount Fuji. And so there, there's been kind of like a pilgrimage um, movement that's been happening of fans of the show going to these sites um, to to stay at the same camps that, that the girls had stayed in in the show and I guess the reason why I thought this was so other than it just being very wholesome and good and like it's nice to see these girls sit around a campfire eating marshmallows and like taking pics um, and just having fun times the reason why I really appreciated this 
show is because I feel like it gives us this depiction of a relationship with nature that is very much a being in placeness um, rather than some sort of like a direct confrontation with, um, which, you know, often often when we when we look at depictions of relationships with nature especially ones that are supposed to lead to some sort of uh revelation or sublime experience or um significance in our life there's often uh depictions of triumph over or uh you know like near death experiences where you survived against and there's all these verbs of dominion and and overcoming the nature itself and um i was talking to rob about this <laughs> while i was preparing my notes but it reminded me a lot of this essay i read a couple years ago um called uh i'll find it i had it here in my notes got and it and i got rid uh you have yeah. it an ecological feminist revisioning of the masculinist sublime and that is by patrick d murphy uh university of central florida Yes. Um, so I read that a few years ago in this class I took specifically on uh, the theory of the sublime, which comes out of aesthetic theory, um, which is uh, a lot of the aesthetic theory writings um, in the more traditional sense, uh, like the people that we credit the um, founding of aesthetic theory with or a founding of sorry, sublime theory with. Um, have these very uh, masculinist uh, conceptions of this sort of triumphing over, this surviving against these um, direct engagements that you can see this in, in like, a the specific paper references, like, John Muir and his writings of, like, hiking, hiking through the mountains and having to, like, overcome the forces of nature to survive and how that informed his relationship with nature as, like, a force to be reckoned with. Um, so I just, and I don't think, I was saying to Rob that I don't think this, this uh, show is, is doing all the work that is un ecological feminist revisioning of the masculine sublime <laughs> but i do appreciate that it is a pushback against sort of like the individual um and encourages group experience which um is interesting when thinking about like ecological uh movements and thinking about like how we uh, relate to to nature and to the ecological systems around us, how we think about organizing and uh, resisting, you know, uh, uh, climate change and things like that, that individual action is actually not as strong as group action and, and, and uh, organized community efforts. Um, and it also is, is interesting because it's not this sort of shallow uh romanticizing of of just going camping because the actual labor and effort that goes into it is highlighted um through the narrator like telling you okay this is actually like the work you have to do to make this happen and also the actual actions of the girls like walking around collecting firewood and you know examining things and some things don't work and some things do um and i don't <laughs> yeah so Laidback camp is really good, <laughs> in my <laughs> humble opinion. Um, 
Well, yeah, I mean, I was I was really struck by, uh, first of all, it's just utterly charming. Like, it is hard to watch this and not immediately want to go buy camping supplies and, like, drive up <laughs> into the nearest mountains, uh, which, um, sorry, Patrick, I mean, <laughs> probably, probably not so much for you, but, like, Michigan's only so far away, I suppose. That's um, true. I have no experience camping. I've always, I would like to get the skill set, but that was not in my, my family was not a camping family, so that's just, mm-hmm. like, not a thing I did grow up. But, um, like, I just... Love little details like where, um, uh, for instance, like the when it opens on Rin uh, pedaling her bike up uh, up into mm-hmm. the foothills, uh, just the rhythm of her pedaling and her breathing, you just like, it's a weird thing, but it's so evocative. You can almost like feel like the air starting to burn. You and, feel the cold yeah, air. Yeah. And like the, so the rhythm wild. of trying to sustain that effort and like what it takes to get up the mountain. It is very... Uh, it, it is a very tangible show in, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. I, I find utterly charming. Uh, but I did think, so the, the paper you cited was really interesting. And I do think the show may not be consciously in dialogue with some of these concepts, but I, I think the paper is useful in like applying to the show, um, which is, and I don't see how how the show is going to escape this plant this 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 problem, but uh, let's describe the problem. So, the paper's position is basically this whole like theory of the sublime and its relationship to like somehow the concept of the sublime and the beauty of nature and its value and its worth um, is actually a basically flawed and maybe even a useless concept for translating into meaningful action to change mm-hmm. our relationship to our environment in some like productive sense is, is my read on this. Like, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. and so because, because the issue is it relies on that experience still being translated through the lens you already brought with you to nature. Mm-hmm. So like, it's the same reason why like you can have somebody who appreciates nature and loves camping and like, loves uh you know studying the habitats of animals like you know a passionate hunter or uh Mm -hmm. you know climber can also still be somebody who does not give a fuck about the environment because yeah the experience of the sublime will still be translated through their worldview and rendered into something else based on that worldview but but it is not in service of of the thing the First of all, even calling it a thing, calling it the object, but the object that they're engaging with. Right. Like, um, I mean, I, like reading this paper, I immediately thought about Red Dead, uh, to be honest. Like, Red, mm-hmm. like particularly Red Dead huh. 2 opens with, like, your complete full of shit uh, gang leader basically waxing poetic about the beauty of the, of, of the wilderness and the frontier that he's inhabiting and hiding out in. And it all mm-hmm. sounds very high-minded, but for him, the wilderness is still fundamentally a place where he can take and do what he wants. Like, the wilderness is a utility for him where, mm-hmm. like, the government can't reach him. Um, mm-hmm. So this, this paper is kind of arguing that you need, you need something else uh, besides this idea of simply, like, appreciating nature and the sublime to create a positive, like, ecologically oriented um, mm-hmm. reaction to nature. I don't know. For me, I think the show, where, where I do get with this is like, the show does not seem to be fetishizing this idea of being hardcore about mastering nature. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's none of this, like, yeah. 
yep, going to go up into the foothills and like hike into the backcountry about 20 miles and camp for a few days. I do not get the sense Yeah, of and that. just fucking survive. Like, it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's a thing that's being done I mean, by like the, 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 uh, the moment where uh, she's trying to read and it's cold as shit. And, and like, there's another version where it's like, I'm just going to suffer through this. It's cold. I'm out here. I'm surviving. Yeah. It's like... I'll just go build a fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, oh, I don't want to smell smoky. Well, I'm going to build the fire because it's cold mm-hmm. out. Yep. Well, and it cuts um, to at that moment, a squirrel also sort of huddling a little bit in the forest and like gathering a nut. And I do love that like cut of being kind of a, yeah, look, like, you know what I mean? Like, we're, like you're not so, like we're animals. Yeah. Uh, like this is like yeah. to a degree, to a point you're you cold. have to follow instinct and you are not above or tougher than you just are. Yeah, and I, I to to point to your question, Rob, if if the show will sort of I don't I don't think the show will necessarily answer this question, but I do think that that small cutscene does point to like a cohabituation that this is, um, th- because the thing with with the individual experience, the thing with the rock climber climbing the rock, is that there is no there's no back and like there there is for the most part no conception of a back and forth and i think a lot of the time um conceptions of of being in nature of uh and especially uh uh uh, western colonial conceptions of being in nature is as observer is as survivor is as uh um you know taking it in like just take it in take in the nature and in comparison to um other conceptions other other knowledges existing knowledges of um indigenous peoples about um you know there is a um there is there is a writer that i read at the beginning of the year that i don't remember their name um but i read it in a class specifically about um uh indigenous uh uh conceptions of uh, ecology and cohabituation and things like that but um they uh, advocated for the replacing of uh a pronoun with the specific pronoun kin and so instead of referring you refer to everything as kin. And, oh, this person is, uh, I don't remember. But so anyway. Can you explain like, what so, you mean by that, that switch, though? Yeah, so, so what I mean by this is that uh, everything, you, I, a tree, nature, a rock, everything is, would be used as the, the uh, pronoun kin. And so you'd say, like, uh, uh, if you're talking about the the tree over there, you'd say, "Kin has beautiful leaves," mm. um, or or if I'm talking about what Danielle is saying, I would say, "Kin said that Hellraiser was the first one was cool or whatever." <laughs> um, but I think that that speaks to sort of this relationship that is kinship that is back and forth that that is dependent on each other and reinforces the conception that 
they are not res God. Um, they are not resources to be used without acknowledging their contribution, if that makes sense. Like they they are if if we if we use something from nature, if we are in nature, we are we are thankful, we are grateful to to that being for supplying us with um uh uh you know if i'm walking around gathering sticks like i am grateful to the trees to for for letting those sticks go go and and or grateful to the bushes for or grateful to the squirrels for making the sticks available to me you know like there there is a direct relationship of gratitude that i think is completely absent in um the relationship of you know the the or the conception of you know John Muir uh, walking through the woods, like the 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 gratitude there is in John Muir for surviving it. Do you know? Like I'm grateful to myself for being capable, instead of I am grateful. You to sustained yourself this in nature earth for taking care for me. Nature yeah, did exactly. not sustain you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Danielle, can I ask if there's like any sort of like Shinto vibes coming from this as well? The sort of um you know the kin yeah the, the sort of kin conception yeah let yeah. me find it really fast because it, it is actually written by if i'm not mistaken a chinese uh kin wait the show or the paper the the this it, it's like a um it's not a manifesto uh but it is the the paper itself is uh, written by. Um, I guess I meant the show, but like if the paper. Does oh this wait, as well. you meant the yeah. show. Oh, uh, wait. Can you repeat your question then? Just because if there's I like totally... any sort of Shinto vibes in there, like with with regard to a lot of what you're talking about. I'm not an expert, of course. Uh, but yeah, it it sounds like it could be of a piece in that sort of view of nature of like there is a being in everything. There is a sort of spirit in everything in nature. I I think it definitely gives that um, I think it it sort of evokes that sentiment for me, maybe because I already have that perspective. I don't know if it's saying it. Sure. Um, and I was wrong because. My brain is not organized, but the um, the article is written by um, actually someone of the um, Ashinaabi tribe, and uh, their name is uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, and uh, the article is called Nature Needs a New Pronoun to Stop the Age of Extinction. Let's start by ditching it. Um, and I think there was other writing, or this might be, it's key and kin. Um, so key is the... Um, uh, uh, singular and kin is the plural. Um, definitely go read that. It is a really good um, article. But I think because I already have the sort of knowledge and perspective or this is the way that um, I have conceptualized my relationship with nature, that seeing moments of you know, uh, parallels between the girl and the squirrel or seeing, you know, the cold wind having an effect on the girl's breath and things like that and seeing um, nature exist outside of her interaction with it um, lends itself to my own uh, conceptions. But I 
would hesitate to say that it is saying it itself okay um because i don't think it's that deep yeah (laughs) like um no i mean yeah the thing i like (laughs) The show definitely also seems to be, it's still going, like, I don't see how this show is going to avoid the problem of, like, it's still instrumentalizing nature a little bit, right? Like, it's still, mm-hmm. it, it's still doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is still definitely uh, a commodity. Um, it is still, like, there is, uh, uh, I watched the second episode and they talk about how, you know, the tent that they want is too expensive. And so that, that, you know, speaks to like the industry of camping, like you have to buy all this expensive equipment just to, you know, like go out and be in nature, um, which, uh, is definitely not without its problems. Like that, uh, conception that there is an industry, of being in nature um is and it speaks specifically to the problems with the um uh construction of like the sublime and and nature experience because the sublime is or the traditional conceptions of the sublime are about privileging are about uh uh separation i mean uh specific writers wrote that you know women could not experience the sublime because it was outside of their um uh ability or whatever or that you know the sublime could only be afforded to those who could like go on these wild you know tours through the swiss alps and you have to spend a lot of money to do that so there is definitely like still um legacies of that privileging of of you know who could who can experience this um that are apparent in the show because you know you have to afford the 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 gear you need to to be able to do this which um you know sucks yeah uh but i'd like to see how the show progresses and and what kind of like I mean, there has to be some sort of arc, so I, I'm very curious to see what the arc is based on. Again, I've only seen the first two episodes, um, so I'm curious to see like where that arc is centered. I have a feeling it's around Rin, the lonely girl, having to make friends because she realizes that she can't do everything on her own and that Aww. she has to do it with with her friends who she's reluctant to make friends with, but who also love Who can say? Things. We just don't know what's <laughs> going to happen. Say? I don't know, like, what's going to happen with Rin and those those maybe friends uh, she's making. Those maybe friends. Maybe friends. Um, yeah. But I, I would, hi- I uh, uh, linked the the article um, in chat and uh, would highly recommend people read that because it is really, really good and it has a lot of socks. Please stop. Sorry. Socks is about to collapse onto socks. the floor. Hold on. Well, I mean, this is how socks commune with nature. Socks lives on the floor. Socks is part of the floor socks ecosystem. Is climbing like on a blanket that was on top of an open box, and it was slowly falling. And I was very concerned that he was going to land in another open box because I still have all my moving boxes open and not put away. Yeah, I've just so got a closet. Know what happens? Uh, yeah, I. We'll have all these uh, materials in the post for this episode uh, on the website. Um, and I got to say, I was surprised how utterly charming uh, I found Laidback Camp. Uh, so it, it does seem like, particularly this time of year, 
uh, seems like a really fun and like nourishing show to watch. Uh, Would you drink a pumpkin spice latte while while watching it? If, that if that's thing? if that's your autumnal beverage of choice, you absolutely could. Uh, for me, <laughs> I would eat an instant ramen because she eats this instant curry ramen and it looks so good. And I really, it almost made me buy instant ramen last night. <laughs> Kato's saying he, he wants a hot toddy. Yeah, watching yeah that would be I nice. Want That's probably far, so. like hot cocoa with uh, some, some very nice uh, marshmallows. Uh, all right, so yeah. I think that will do it for this week's Waypoints. Uh, our thanks to Too Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney, and you can find me on Twitter, at Rob Zachney. Patrick Klopik, where can people find you? At Patrick Klopik. Danielle? You can find me talking about Kink and Hellraiser. At Danielle R.I. Natalie. Uh, you can find me carving pumpkins later Aww. and watching a scaly movie that I haven't decided on yet. Oh, do you have you like thought about your options? What do we, what, I don't know. What us? should I do watch? You need recommendations? I, okay. Yes, I do. I need recommendations. We can't, we can't do this now. We we'll sure have an can. offline chat. We'll, we'll, we'll have, yeah, this is long. We'll, if we, yeah. <laughs> I want something well, really, really fucking. You scary. actually want to be scared? Like really Hereditary. fucking scary. Right. We'll, we'll. I present, watched it. We'll, we'll present you with some options. Okay. There, I will okay. post what I watch. Okay. I will Good. let everyone know what what the horror experts here in front of me recommend. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening to Waypoints, and we hope you've enjoyed the break. Uh, we'll be back again very soon with Waypoint Radio. Uh, hope you'll join us again. But until then, do not give in to astonishment. Stop me if this sounds familiar. You're a podcast host, and you've got an entire segment primed and ready with a script you're going to read, and then your panelists completely derail it into a conversation that is so graphic and so detailed in various phobias that it has to be covered by a blanket of caution warnings, particularly uh, if you are grossed out by bugs, bugs in your living spaces, various other pests like rats or mice inhabiting your urban dwelling or your home, uh, and particularly if like cockroaches or spiders freak you out, you should probably stop listening here and do not listen to what Natalie and friends uh, did to my beautiful, beautiful show intro. It's Halloween, and tis the season to be haunted. Uh, I keep waiting, is... though. It won't happen. I got haunted today. What? I found a fucking cockroach in my dog's mouth. Ah! Which was the most fucking haunted <laughs> shit Dog. ever. It was, was fucking socks? gross. Killed it? Was it? Yeah, I, like, did he eat it? looked over at him, and he had this black thing, like, in the edge of his lip. And I was like, what 
the fuck? And I like walked over and then he dropped it and it was just a cockroach. And then I tried to like get the Was the cockroach, cockroach moving and alive? Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm really afraid of bugs. Like I have a really, 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 really bad fear of bugs. And I was like, all right, do I leave this here? <laughs> Call my boyfriend and wait for the dog to finish go the job. Take socks and leave the house immediately. Take um, him and run. But I got very brave. I like talked myself up. I was like, "All right, here we go. We can do this. All right, okay. I got some old postage that I can use to grab it." And wait, so, post you post? mail it to some post? What you using <laughs> no, a sticky part of the crime? Because I tried to use the. <laughs> Use the sticky pre- part of postage to pick it up instead no, of just no, getting no, some paper like towels. Say <laughs> so you lick the stamp and then like, all right, put attach this to the cockroach. No, to not like priority stamps, air at just least. Like I hope mail in general, just like general okay. postage. So, but I tried to use paper towels, but because I am cheap and mm-hmm. poor, I buy I buy like super discount paper towels that aren't very thick. And so they're very bendy. And so when I tried to pick it up the first time, it started crawling up towards me. And then I really screamed a lot. And so I had to grab something a little bit stronger. So I grabbed some like old envelopes from when I fucking voted. Good job. Um, So I grabbed my (laughs) I grabbed my ballot envelope, actually, (laughs) that it came in and I lifted it up with. And then I was like holding it in between the paper towel and the and the letter and the envelope, and I was holding it like a pincer. And then I just walked it over to the toilet, and I flushed it, and I was like, ah. "It was ah. You ah. did it! Wait, I did do it. Did you though? Well, <laughs> oh no! It, my worst fear. I read I mean, one time. Aquatic. I read one time about a rat that somebody was taking a poop. And then they looked down, and there was a rat climbing up the fucking toilet. And that is my worst fear <laughs> every hey, time. Hey, uh, Kano, Zachney here. Um, have you marked uh, timestamps, and have you been taking down like caution warning notes uh, for for the top of this episode? We got poop rat at about three fourteen. Poop rat. Poop rat yeah. is my worst. Also, another really terrifying fear that I have based on Please something continue. I read on Please. the internet. This is her white boy. Yeah. It's very irrational, but I once read one time about someone that was using a loofah in their shower that they oh, hadn't God, used no. in a while, and they and they started brushing it on themselves, and a million baby spiders came yeah. out, and so every time, every time. I use a loofah. I just stomp on it a million times. Every single what? time I get in the shower. Every single time I get in the shower. I When I use my loofah, I put it on the floor. I stomp on it a little bit. And then I use it. You ever found anything in it? No, never. Not once. But I will never not do that because I'm fucking terrified of being covered in baby spiders. Is my worst nightmare. That's, you're acting like that's... Not unreasonable. Like, mm, you know, just these fucking cowards out there that just don't want to bathe in baby spiders. <laughs> but just, I don't know. There is an irrationality to, to the fear to of, you know, my loofah being contaminated. But now that I've seen a fucking cockroach, this is my first bug that I've seen in the house. 
And my last apartment was plagued by bugs. I had like ants. I had those fucking thousand-legged demons. Centipedes? Oh, centipedes. Yeah. No, or not millipedes? centipedes. Millipedes? Whatever. They're called um, uh, silverfish. Silverfish. Oh, oh no, silverfish. no, 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 no. Fuck a silverfish. Mm. If I fucking see a I have thrown boots at the wall. <laughs> I've like th- just chucked it from across Ew. the room. Ew. Oh, oh my god! I really don't like bugs, y'all. I really. I had to get over. I'm uh, I'm specifically like borderline phobic of like uh, tarantulas. Specifically, there's mm. something like about them that like really the hairy like, legs. I don't know. It's anything about them just it just does nothing. But like, so I'm not. It's not all spiders, but spiders are good. I've had to like <laughs> rationalize spiders. the spiders. Some spiders are good. The spiders are. <laughs> They don't pick a side. Excuse they eat me, everything. sir. I couldn't <laughs> help but hear you a say some things about spiders. Spider. Well, like the daddy long legs, like the spiders that you find in your house, like the also, common spider. Also, peacock spiders fucking own those things are cute as hell. Wait, what kind I, of spiders? I, I, I'm, indif- I'm indifferent about them. Like I, I could, I, I used to crush them, and then I read about them, and I, re- I realized they were doing more good for my house than not. There's just too so many. Now you of just them. let them walk around. I let the Roommates. if they are in a spot that I will have to see at all times. I will, I will, I will move them. I will re- either remove okay. them from the house or I put okay. them in a different spot. But if they're like mm-hmm. in the corner. Of the house, like in a spot that's like, I'd really, I'd have to get a fucking broom. Like, you know what? You're taking care of some shit. You're actually help keeping this house clean. Okay, I'm gonna fair. get. I'm just gonna give you a pass, spider. Couldn't be me, but fair. I'm in an old gotta, Brooklyn apartment. My cats and my my dog eats some bugs, but my cats are like master hunters when it comes from Ooh. bugs. But it's it's really disturbing because a lot of times they'll play with their food before they eat it. So they got like a little tiny cockroach. I have a lot of like the tiny cockroaches. It's gross. Bad. I know it's New York. Oh, those are the bad ones to have. Those yeah, they're real. That's a real fucking problem. It like sometimes hang out in my shower. It's not the best thing. Is that the place you just renewed the lease on? Yep. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Uh, but a lot of times like they'll be like playing with it and it's like on its back and like trying to skitter around mm. and Ori, the sweetest little tiny sweetheart who like cuddles up with me every morning and like, you know, grooms me every day. She's just like, playing with it and playing with it and playing with it and all of a sudden it's like cut in half and it's still trying to like skitter away and she's just having the greatest time she looks up at me with her little teddy bear face little little smile like this is great and then little demon does anyone in this chat have like a serious arachnophobia Mm -mm. not like hearing about if i see them but not hearing. oh no we're uh, you're gonna see a spider but it's a cute why it's the cutest spider is it actually cute it's actually cute Good. It does a little dance and it puts up a little peacock feather thing and <gasps> dances for attention. Okay. Okay. This is I mean, a version has, of therapy. It has eye. It has multiple eyes because spiders do. But all it wants to do is like make you happy. Okay. Send it to me. I'm happy scared. Spider. I'm scared. Okay. Oh, it's a video. Oh, it's no, cute. No. 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 Nope. No. Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> no. Oh, come on, it's cute. Scrolling up, scrolling it's, up, and it like does little like uh, like calisthenics and like dances from side to side and like just wants okay. I'm getting well. this off my screen. It's yeah. adorable. Push, come on, push. it's cute. <laughs> it's doing it's doing like a little cheerleading thing. It's doing a whole thing. I refuse to watch all it. Right. Yeah. Um, no, it turns out I, you've radicalized me, Rob. All those fucking spiders in the corner are now being eradicated after this podcast. <laughs> 
Yeah, Cat Cat uh, feels it. Cat, uh, this is Z Man again. We're going to uh, put this at the end of the episode behind a caution warning, and we're going to take that segment from the top. Uh, so just like make a note of the time, and uh, maybe put a little cut in here, and we're just going to go on like that whole thing. I don't know if happen. we're in a bit or not. I can't. This, we, this is a layered podcast. Z Man is uh, must be. Wait, who the Hello, hell is Z Man? What is this? Z Man. Roger Z Man. Is the name of our production assistant. Yeah, is it a bit? Who knows? Uh, <laughs> it is not a bit. Like, put this at the end of the episode. It's probably good. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.